This episode contains spoilers. Please listen responsibly. Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Hit List Podcast. A podcast where me and a guest cross off films from a watch list by watching them. I'm joined today by film critic Zachiel Marsh. Welcome, Zachiel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your streaming viewing habits? Whenever you sit down to watch a movie, do you choose something new or do you stick to your favorites? Yeah, I always try to choose something new. I feel like... uh... Every week, there's something that like comes out that catches my eye, or there's something I completely miss in the theaters that I'm like, oh, now it's finally on like Netflix or Hulu or something. Uh, so I'll try to watch it there. It's rare that I like rewatch things, but like it does happen occasionally. I'm kind of the opposite. I rewatch a lot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but I try to like get away from that. That's why I started this podcast, by the way. Because I wanted to watch stuff that's on my list that I've just been staying there unwatched. So that's why it's a podcast where we cross off films we haven't watched before. little fun fact for the new viewers. New listeners. There we go. New listeners. So today the two films we're discussing are Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles, and Alien, directed by Ridley Scott. Two very classic films. Citizen Kane is a 1941 American drama film directed by Orson Welles, who also served as his producer and co-screenwriter, and starred in it as well. It was his first feature film and considered by many critics, filmmakers, and fans to be the greatest film ever made. It's a quasi-biographical film that examines the life and legacy of Charles Foster Kane, who is a composite character based in part upon American media barons such as William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer and Samuel Insull and Harold McCormick, as well as aspects of the screenwriter's own lives. So, Susan Kane was on Zachiel's list. Zachiel, can you tell us a little bit why this film was on your list? Yeah, I remember when I was like uh, like 11 or 12. I, I've always loved movies, but like I wanted to know more about them. So I went on Google. I was like, greatest movies of all time. And I like Google searched that. And then you find like the American Film Institute had made their top 100 list in uh, I think 2007 and 1997. And Citizen Kane was number one both times. A bunch of other critics list. Citizen Kane has been number one. It's like, very, like, if you say Citizen Kane is the best movie of all time, that's a pretty standard opinion amongst film critic circles. And despite watching a bunch of classics over the years, I still never watched Citizen Kane. It was just one <laughs> of those ones that uh, I never got around to. It was either never streaming, or I was just not in the mood to watch a uh, two-hour black-and-white drama from the 1940s. Right. But finally, I was like, today is the day. And after 10 years of wanting to watch it, I finally finally got it off the list. Yeah, I definitely understand that statement. Like, I've done the same thing, like, but mostly for Wikipedia. They're always like, this film made it to the top 10, whatever. And like you said, it's always the American Film Institute because, you know, they always had those things. And, yeah, Citizen King was on it. And I think I remember I was in high school or whatever. My professor, I think my history professor, told me that Vertigo beat it for one year for, like, another thing. For the uh, sight and sound. Vertigo won in 2012. Yeah, there we go. There we go. So I was, like, interested in, like, learning more about Susan Kane. But, like, like you said, it's a black and white film <laughs> made in 1940s. And 
the the thing is like I used to be very prejudiced against like older films because like it's older like we have more technology now like we have the technology but I will say I had to watch it for my film class last year before COVID whole thing broke down and I didn't pay as much attention to it because I was like I would always like write stuff in the middle of like film class but from what I did watch I liked it very much so that's why I wanted to watch it again when you said it was on your list uh, but your initial reactions what were your initial reactions after view- viewing this film yeah, my initial reactions to the film that is currently said to be the greatest of all time. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I like it. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a really good movie in a lot of aspects. Um, I don't love it. It's not in my top 100 by any means. Uh, it kind of leaves me cold in a lot of ways. I didn't emotionally resonate with the story. Uh, that may just be because my expectations were so high going in, mm. and I tried to like temper them, be like, okay, don't go in with too high expectations. But I don't know. I did not love it by any stretch of the imagination, but I cannot deny the things it does well. It does incredibly well, and from a technical aspect, like for, for like the cinematography, the editing, the music, uh, it's beautiful. Like it's it truly is a masterpiece when it comes to all those aspects of filmmaking. Yeah, so basically everything you just said about that regarding like a classic movie is how I felt about Casablanca, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> like I had such high expectations for it. And then when I saw it, I just felt like it was so cliched. And then, because it was another required viewing from my film class. And my film professor told me like the reason why it's so cliched is because people copy this movie to the point where like it's considered cliched now. Yeah, I, I had to say I actually love Citizen Kane. It's like one of my favorite movies like, I even like it, like, second time viewing, I love it even more. I also want to, like, go into, like, more detail about the the movie. So, the reason why Orson Welles was able to direct this movie is because of his success at his Mercury Theater and a controversial 1938 radio broadcast of The World of the Worlds, um, which people believed were aliens were attacking the Earth because of the whole radio thing, which I, I thought was stupid when I first learned that. I was like, I believe I was 10 when I first learned that fact because I read in the textbook about like the impacts of radio. I'm like, how stupid can people be? And I, as an adult, I'm like, very stupid, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so after that whole thing, he he signed a contract for with RKO, RKO Pictures in 1939. And it, this was very unusual for like a, a first-time director. He was given the freedom to develop his own story and to use his own cast and crew and to have final cut privilege. And following two attempts to get a project off the ground, he wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane with also collaborative efforts with Herman J. Mankiewicz. And he was 25 when that movie came out. I always like hate like learning those facts because I'm like, man, I'm 24. What am I doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's always like, oh, uh, I mean, there's always, there's that book by Robert Rodriguez, like, uh, I forgot, forgot the name of it. Um Rebel Without a Crew, and how a 23-year-old made, like, a hit film, like, a, with with only $3,000. I'm like, mm-hmm. man, what did I do? I'm like, wait, I was in a pandemic. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> can't, ho- so, can't hold it against you at this point, you know? Yeah, that, that's the whole thing. So, like, uh, it, it's just really hard to, like, do, hear those facts and compare myself. I'm like, wait, I can't, I gotta stop doing that. I gotta stop doing that, you know? But, yeah, what do you think about hearing this? Like, hearing this was his first film. Uh, I think Citizen Kane would not work 
if it was not Orson Welles's first... First of all, if it was not an Orson Welles film. And second of all, if it was not his first film. Because a big part of what went into it is that this guy had no idea what he was doing. So he was just like, hey, can we, like, shoot the camera this way? And then people would be like, well, no one's ever done it that way. Like, that's not at all the <laughs> the usual way we do things. And he's like, ah, let's try it. And ends up becoming one of the most, like, beautiful-to-look-at movies I've ever seen. Like, um, this is also the first movie, I believe, to do deep focus. Um, which is, like, basically where everything on this frame is completely in focus. And, yeah, Orson Welles would not have tried that if he had done movies in the past. If he had known, like, the cinematic language. So it's pretty crazy that... Sometimes you just need a unique mind to come in and, like, throw away convention. Yeah, so the thing is, like, um, people think that he, like, was learning it, learned filmmaking before he actually made the film. But he said, like, he said before, like, plenty of interviews, I was completely ignorant of how to make a film until I had to make this movie. <laughs> but the thing is, like, um, this guy named David Bordwell, he's an American film critic and I believe, yeah, film theorist and film historian. He said the best way to understand Citizen Kane is to stop worshiping it as a triumphant technique. Because he argues that the film did not invent other famous techniques, such as like deep focus cinematography and shots of the ceiling, all that stuff. And he asserts that he just put them all together for the first time and perfected the medium in one single film. And in a 1948 interview, D.W. Griffith said, I love Citizen Kane and particularly love the ideas he took from me. I, um, so I've been making like a very conscious effort to watch more old films recently. And I watched a lot of films from like the 20s and the 30s. And it's always funny because people do say, oh, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane invented like cinematography in this way. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, Sunrise from <laughs> 1927 looks pretty good too. Like uh, M from 1931 looks pretty awesome. It, all of these movies have like used a lot of the similar language. Citizen Kane does it with so much style though. That was my own impression as well. Like I thought he like invented this. Like, no, he just did it all in one piece. Like kind of like a, how do you say, collage of like techniques that's kind of more common nowadays because mm -hmm. we have a whole like, how do you say, a library of films um, to draw from to like make our own stuff. So another thing I want to talk about for Citizen Kane, it was selected by the Library of Congress as an inductee to the 1989 inaugural group of 25 films for preservation and the United States National Film Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote. But I will say that the reason the, the National Film Registry was, was made because there was like a colorization controversy. So Ted Turner, he wanted to colorize the film and people were like very much against it. And the whole thing culminated when um, I believe Wells' estates um, said like he had a specific thing in the contract that said to not colorize the film. And that whole controversy was a factor in the passage of the National Film Preservation Act in 1988, which created the National Film Registry the following year, of which the film is in the inaugural group right there. And it mm -hmm. shares the registry with Shrek now. Yes. Well, <laughs> Shrek is very culturally significant, obviously. Very. Yes. Very. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely a good pick for that. It's an iconic movie. So uh, I want to ask you two things. Uh, what were some of your favorite scenes? And what did you think about that bird shriek? Oh, the bird shriek, I jumped. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> That's so unnecessary. It completely caught me off guard. Um, good for them. 
I guess. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to know why it's there? It's to cat. I believe I read somewhere it's to wake you up. Yep. Right. <laughs> And I was like, thanks, I guess. <laughs> I li- Like, it happened. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> I was awake. <laughs> if anything, I needed this bird shriek like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very sudden. And yeah, that's what I learned as well. Like, when I heard it, I was like, whoa, what's going on? My professor told me because he screened it in class. So, like, it was very loud for everyone. Right. And that's what he learned that, like, he... he he thought that, like, people would be asleep by then because it was a long movie. So he just did it to, like, wake them up for, like, the last few minutes of the movie. I'm like, Wells, why would you do this? Why would you do this to us now? <laughs> it's like, imagine watching that in, like, IMAX or something with the oh, Dolby, like, ah! <laughs> 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 So that bird shriek definitely caught me off guard. Favorite scenes... I really love the uh, the breakfast scene with him, with Kane and his first wife. Just because, two reasons. It's it it shows the like the dissolution of their marriage in only like a couple minutes, and it does it with so much style and like pizzazz. Like there's so many ways they could have done it, and Wells was like, "Yeah, but we could do it this way." And also, it's just like a masterpiece when it comes to like editing and like makeup and hairstyling. Like it's just so quick. And, like, you can see each at, like, each breakfast, their relationship gets progressively worse. And you also see them age, like, every single year. To the end, right. where, like, I buy Orson Welles being, like, 40-something by the end, even though he was only 25 when he filmed this. Like, great makeup. Robert Wise was the editor on this movie, and he would go on to become the director of, like... West Side Story, mm. and uh, The Haunting. I want to say The Sound of Music. I'm not positive on that one. But yeah, like it's super cool to see like this iconic director in his own right basically did some of the best editing for a film in that time period. So I love the breakfast scene a lot. Also a big fan of that one shot when um, after he destroys... Uh, it's near the end. After he destroys his room... He walks out into his hallway, and he walks into the Hall of Mirrors, and you basically see... Because the whole point of the movie is that, like, Kane is not just one person's perception of the man. Kane is all these men and none of these men simultaneously. And the best way to show that is to literally show a bunch of mirrors, and you see, like, dozens of... Well, like, at least a dozen Kanes, like, walking through the, the hallway. And it's just such a awesome scene very thematically rich comes at like the emotional climax yeah it's fantastic yeah that's one it's also one of my favorite scenes the whole mirror thing i I just have a huge fascination with mirrors i guess because uh there's that scene in us and there's also like plenty of like scenes like uh like cop thrillers where like i guess like the cop runs into a hall of mirrors to catch a criminal and they can't find him it happens a lot. I, I love mirror scenes, but that was a really good one. Really good analysis. I didn't catch that, but I, I see it now. That makes sense. And as far as like the storytelling technique, the movie rejects the traditional linear and chronological device that most movies up to that point had been doing. So it didn't go from like beginning, middle, and end. It just It's mostly told through flashbacks and through the perspective of other people. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of stories overlap as well. So like whenever one person ends there recollection of Susan Kane, another person picks it up where they left off and from their perspective. 
one of my favorite like um flashback scenes is with Jebediah. He wrote that very harsh review of Susan, and he said. I forgot exactly what he said, but basically, like, if there was a low before, there's a new low now. I'm like, bruh, that was, like, very harsh. And I thought he was getting, like, fire him immediately and not let write the review. But he finished it and left the same review, and he fired um, Jebediah. And I was like, bruh, what? <laughs> and then you find out in the next flashback with Susan's flashback, she was very mad about that, but she didn't know that he finished that review. Yep. And I was yep. like... This man thought he had some sense of honor, but really he hurt people in the end. He's like the the 1941 version of Ted Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) The only difference is Ted Cruz doesn't have any honor, I guess. (laughs) He thinks he does, but he doesn't. (laughs) That's that's true. That's true. Uh, But yeah, that's like the storytelling technique, as I said, like the... It basically is the cinematic equivalent of the unreliable narrative and mm-hmm. narr- narrator in literature because like like you said different people had different perspectives about him it's also great because like since we see these people's perspectives our opinion of kane is constantly changing so like when we see from his like stepfather because he was sold to the bank that's the only part of the movie I'm a little unclear on. <laughs> Bruh, same here, because I, I didn't catch that first. And now, second view, I'm like, whoa, did they just give his custody over to a bank? <laughs> it's like, this kid is raised by money, literally. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, so when you see from his, like, stepfather's point of view, he's this young ideologue, and he's just like, oh, power to the people, yeah. And then, like, you see from his business manager's side, who I don't understand how that business manager outlived Kane because he looked like 60 when we met him. And right. he somehow is older than somehow I'd lived a 20 year old. But anyway, he sees like the, uh, like the enterpriser and like the smart businessman at the heart of it all. But then by the end, when you see the butler and you see the wife, like the second wife, she sees like the misery and like the viciousness behind him, but also the charm. The butler sees this broken man only Jebediah really sees him in its true form, and that's obviously the section of the movie that is the most, uh, how should I say, like, emotionally complex, I'd say. Because even you don't really know how to feel about Kane at that point. Yeah, definitely, because he, he had the most to say about him. He was, like, the most critical about him, because Kane would say it's all about the working man, and then Jebediah is like, well, when the working man has their own opinion, they're going to see it as their rights, and that's something that you can give them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, pretty much. That scene with Jebediah and um, Kane, I want to talk about that scene as well. Because it was a low angle scene. It was like after his loss, after his loss to become the governor. A non-orthodox method that they used for the movie was the low angle shots. And also the fact that like, all the sets had ceilings. Which is kind of uncommon even to this day because the ceiling is used for lights. But he wanted it to be, have like a seed ceiling. I guess so that they can like make it feel like they're in a, they had a ceiling. It also, it also worked for the low angle shots, as you saw. And for that extreme low angle, as you can see, they literally had to drill into the floor for it. Like, and it was like concrete floor as well, so it was really hard. You can look on Wikipedia, like the way it looked like. They're like, they drilled it into the floor. The cameraman um, is right there, and he's holding this huge camera as it like moving across the floor. So that's uh, another method that they use. And I might use that for my own movies soon. Do it. It looks <laughs> great. Everything. Uh... If I've noticed anything in this movie is that there's so many scenes that could have been shot differently that 
Wells used a very, even if not necessarily innovative, stylish way of doing it. Like, right. You could have just shot that as, like, a back-and-forth uh, talk. But no, exactly. he, like, shoots him in very, very low angles so that we are looking up to him at that moment. Or, like, um, the scene where uh, Susan tries to commit suicide. That's definitely a scene that many people would have done, like, very, like, numerous takes on. Or, like, right. numerous cuts. He does it in one unbroken shot, all in the background. So, like, like the foreground is the pill bottle. And that's, like, you know what's happened, and then we just get to see, like, the struggle and the emotional fallout from it kind of in the background. And that's such a cool way of doing that scene. Yeah, that was a great scene as well. Very powerful scene as right there. And as far as, like, the reception for this movie, so this is some this is kind of the, the legacy of Citizen Kane. So the character of a Kane, of Charles Foster Kane, as I said before, he's a composite character, and he's partly based off of like William Randolph Hearst, who was an American businessman and a newspaper publisher. And hearing about this movie enraged him so much that he banned any advertising, reviewing, or mentioning of it in his papers and had his journalist libel Wells. It got really out of hand, like how much he hated him for that movie. And despite his attempts to like destroy the film... Since its release, like every re- reference to his life and career had a reference to Citizen Kane. I think um, that's another re- reason the movie's so powerful. It's because you you have to put it in its like historical context. This at the at this age, um, yellow journalism was huge. This was just after the Great Depression. People like William William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Pulitzer, like all of these big uh, media moguls, pretty much was so powerful and like so had so much influence over the American public and to make a movie pretty much attacking them and to basically said say these are just sad lonely men mm. at the end of the day like people wanted to see that I think the only film like I guess the modern day equivalent and it's not a perfect comparison by any means uh is something like the social network Yep. Where you look at these tech billionaires and you look at just the humanity and lack of empathy at the end of them. And it also plays destruction. It also has great cinematography and editing and all that. But that's the closest thing I can imagine to like a modern day equivalent. Yeah, I actually just told my friend, like, if you like the social network, I think you'll like Susan Kane Because, like, they're kind of like parallels to it. Like, how, like, they succeeded and how they're, like, kind of receptive towards the other people around them. That's so funny because I think the social network is in like my top, my personal top 10. I think the social network is like a pretty perfect movie in almost every sense. And this isn't Kane. I'm like, yeah, this is good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that reception with uh, William Randolph Hearst, who hated it so much, he tried to destroy it. But like now, he kind of like, it kind of like, what's that effect called? The, uh, the Streisand effect. There we go. There, yeah. thank you. The more you try to suppress something or try to hide something, the more people are going to find out. The more likely people are going to find out about it. Yeah, unfortunately for Hearst is that it's part of his legacy now because he did his best to to suppress it. He did succeed in the short term. His and Kane was nowhere near the financial success people expected it to be. And it actually got booed at the Oscars that it premiered at. Like every wow. single time. He got like 11 nominations. And... It got booed every single time during the uh, ceremony. 
and but it still won best writing. I'd like to point out. <laughs> um, so people loved it, but people were like, "Oh, but I shouldn't love it." It's like chocolate, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And another final thing I want to talk about about this movie is the writing credit. So it's a very long-standing controversy as to who has the credit to this film, to the screenplay. So he Wells conceived the project and. With, with Herman J. Monkowitz. I, I hope I'm saying it right. I'm not sure. Because he used to write the radio plays for um, for Wells' radio series back at CBS. And Monkowitz, he had the, he based the original outline. This is crazy. He based the original outline on the life of William Randolph Hearst. He actually based it on him because he knew him socially. And he came to hate him because he became ex- exiled from his circle. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> All I know is many great deeds in life have been accomplished due to pettiness. So I totally <laughs> believe that. It, it's so petty and it's so out of spite. And yeah, it's kind of funny. But the thing is, like, there was more controversy over it because the terms of the contract stated that Malkowitz was to receive no credit for his work because he was hired as a script doctor. And he kind of resolved it later on where they gave him credit eventually in the film. And then the film eventually says screenplay by Herman Malkowitz and Orson Welles. But uh, Herman, he kind of resented Orson Welles after that. Yeah. Uh, for ne- over the next twelve years, the Netflix film Mank, which came out in December twenty twenty, is based on this whole thing. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really excited to see it. Soon. Me, me neither. I d- I decided I should not watch it until I watch Citizen Kane, and now that I've watched Citizen Kane, I can watch Mank. So I pretty much got two movies off my watch list because of this one. <laughs> so it was a twofer for me. Yeah, I heard from other people that like it's better if you if you sync Citizen Kane, you know the history behind it. So now you know the history behind it as well. Quick question before we like go on to like our ad break. Do you think you should have seen this movie sooner? Yeah, I should I definitely should have seen this sooner. I probably would like it more if I had seen it sooner. Like when I was more impressionable. <laughs> um and like my taste were less uh refined and less specific this would have totally set me down i would have watched if i'd seen this sooner i would have watched a thousand old movies sooner than i ended up watching them i think because it is really good and it's a very modern story it works really well um at this point in my film watching career it's like it's almost impossible to live up to the hype it's generated but it's still a very good movie and i wish i had seen it yeah, definitely. Same here. Um, actually, probably not for me because I wasn't into like these type of movies when I was younger. Mm-hmm. M- more, more so now. But after watching this movie, it did compel me to watch more Orson Welles movies. And actually, the first episode of this series, we watched The Stranger, which starred or I think starred and directed by Orson Welles. Oh wow! And it's a very slow burn. It's not like Citizen Kane. I will, I will have to say that if you're gonna put down your list. Oh, my watch list is thousands of movies long at this point. It's like, if someone's like, hey, you should watch this. I'm like, okay. It's go- it goes on the watch list. And now a word from our sponsors. Warning. The following segment contains commentary of sexual violence in the movie Alien. Listener discretion is advised. Now back to the show. So now... We're going to talk about Alien. So, Alien is a 1979 science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon. 
Based on a story by O'Bannon and Ronald Schusset, it follows the crew of the commercial space tug Nostromo, who encounters the eponymous alien, an aggressive and deadly extraterrestrial set loose on the ship. The film stars Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and Yafit Koto. This film was on Jason's list. Jason, why was it on your list? Yeah, so this film is, the Alien in general is like a huge franchise, right? And it's referenced a lot of places. The top thing I can think of right now is when Abe dresses up as the Alien for one of the episodes in Community. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I love Community. (laughs) That Actually, that zombie episode is the very first episode of Community I watched. And that kind of like compelled me to watch the whole show. And I'm very glad I made that decision. Lucky. And (laughs) I've... (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I, I feel very lucky watching it. And I've been told it's like a great study in suspense, and I want to see the movie that inspired like a lot of directors and filmmakers. And the only experience I have with this movie is when I saw Prometheus like a while ago, when it came out, I guess. But yeah, I didn't watch it like in theaters, I watched it like a DVR version. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I was just, I just skipped through a lot. Like, I was just like fast forward a lot for it. I'm like, eh, it's okay. It's interesting. But I didn't like, I wasn't really into it that makes sense and i just i just knew it was a prequel to alien yeah uh here's what i'll say about the alien franchise alien is one of my personal favorite films of all time i think it's fantastic so much style so much suspense so much tension really interesting analyses and readings of alien which we'll get into later um and then aliens the direct sequel is fantastic. It's one of the best action movies I've ever seen. It's probably, it might be my favorite just straight action movie. It's really, really good. Directed by James Cameron. Um, You should definitely put that on your watch list. Aliens is, like me and my dad fight all the time because I say Alien is better than Aliens and he says (laughs) Aliens is better than Alien. Both are fantastic. Both are truly, like, masterpieces of what they attempt to do. Gotcha. And the other ones, you can just leave for all I care. <laughs> because uh, you don't need anything past the, the main duo. But the main duo is legitimately top tier. That makes sense. Okay. Um, the only thing I know about Aliens is that when they were, like, pitching the sequel, they wrote Alien and then wrote the S as a dollar sign. <laughs> That's the only thing I know. Aliens is so good. Honestly, that should be your next episode <laughs> because it is on another level. It's a it's a completely different tone than this one. This one is a horror film first and foremost. Right. Aliens is an action movie. It has a bunch of cool space marines and they kill stuff and it's awesome. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. All right. I'll definitely put it on my list then. Um, but can you tell me a little bit more like you say it's one of your favorite films. Can you tell me a little bit more why it's your favorite? You said it was like about the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Alien is one of my favorite films because it is a film that is just dripping in pure atmosphere. There's so much... You feel like you're on the Nostromo when you're watching this movie. I love the cast. Sigourney Weaver in particular gives like a fantastic performance as like the final girl here. There's so many ways you can read Alien. Like, I definitely read it a lot about... Like, it's a very feminist movie in a lot of ways. It's a movie about capitalism in a lot of ways. It It's a movie about, like, isolation and, like, tension. And then it just, like, really does have these huge, awesome set pieces to, like, 
it's not all just tension. Like, when the tension breaks and you actually get action, those are fantastic. The the chestbuster scene is stunning. It's one of, like, the best scenes, like, in horror movie history. Dallas in the air vents is a scene not a lot of people talk about. Definitely. Because you really don't know where it's going to come or how that's going to go down. Especially because, like, Dallas was, like, kind of built up to be the lead. At, that, <laughs> at least at that point in the film. And then it's over. He's done for. And then you're like, oh, what's going to happen now? It Like, the set design is beautiful. It really feels lived in. A lot of sci-fi, especially nowadays, is, like, too clean, too, like, yeah. nice looking. It's all very chrome and shiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, like, it makes sense that shit would look bad. So, like, like the Nostromo looks like a dirty cargo ship, because that's what the Nostromo is. Um, just so good. Just so good on, like, every level. Yeah, I like what you said. It's kind of, like, built like an oil rigger, because it's kind of exactly what it is. It's They're bringing, like, what, minerals back? Only? Yeah. Yeah. So, it makes sense to, like, not... If they had, like, sleek designs for, like, from that company, it would make sense that they wouldn't do it for that ship in particular, because that's not what it's designed for. Mm-hmm. I forgot to tell you, my, my initial anal- my initial reception to it, uh, let me see. Kind of like how you say it's your favorite movie. I thought it was alright. <laughs> I liked it, but... <laughs> I can see, like you said before with Citizen Kane, I can see, like, the impact it's had, like, how it's very well made. As far as, like, the models for, like, the ships, they could, I know what they're models, but, like, they also look kind of very realistic, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. when they do the shots as well. And it just reminds me of uh, Starship Troopers, because they did kind of like the same thing with Starship Troopers, like, but they also added in computer graphics to make the ships more realistic for, like, serious shots of that. So, what were your favorite parts of it? I will say the air vents... Was my favorite part of the movie. People will talk about the Jess Perster scene. It's iconic. Yeah, it's a very iconic scene. I was, I knew it was coming, but I was still like shocked when I saw it. But for me, my favorite part was when Dallas was in the air vents and the tension is building up, and then the jump scare paid off. There's so many movies where there's so many jump scares, but it doesn't make sense because like it's just out of nowhere. But they did it well because they built that suspense up for like the minutes that he's in there, show that he was in actual danger. And kill him immediately. Like, mm. and that, that scene where, like, the aliens just, like, bah! like, it just scares him, like, oh, <laughs> kills him. And it's like, oh, shit. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> None of us caught it coming. And it's because he's going in that direction that, yeah, I was like, whoa, I'd never seen that part before. Like, chestburster scenes always reference, but never the air vents. Never the air vents. Um, Brett's death scene where the alien is hanging from the rafters oh, while yeah. he walks through the doorway. Like, there's so many great scenes in Alien no one talks about. Like, the ending when um, Ripley is in the <laughs> the shuttle pod, like the escape pod, and she thinks, oh, I'm safe. And then she opens, like, something. And then you see the alien is snuck <laughs> on to the pod with her. And, like, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I think that part I, I'm familiar with because um, American Dad did something similar. They parodied that part. Even to the point where, like, um, Stan takes off his clothes and he has, like, a little thong on as well. That's exactly yeah. how uh, Ripley has it on. But, yeah, that part, I was like, holy shit, he's right there. Like, you didn't even, you don't see it until you see it. It's like those, like, pictures you see online, like, can you see the leopard? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I- I'm gonna die because I don't see it. <laughs> but, yeah, that was a very interesting scene. And just before we started, like, uh, getting into this part, uh, you said the 
face hugger was made out of sheep intestine. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the sh- the shape hugger was made out of sheep intestine, and it's uh, and they actually threw more <laughs> sheep intestine. It was shot out of its egg using like high pressure air hoses, right? Uh. And then like. When they like were like editing it, like they reversed the shot and then slowed it down. So when you finally see the face hugger for the first time, and Kane looks in the egg, it's just like ah, like, <laughs> like when they filmed it, it was like eh. it, it, it like is like removed from his face. And ah. They show it back on. Um, all the designs in this were designed by H. R. Geiger. So right. if you know who that is, um, basically he is a guy who. Um, he drew designs for a Grimbior for something called the Necromonicon. And the Necromonicon is this, like, ancient book of, like, evilness from, like, Lovecraftian works. And a Grimbior is a... I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But a Grimbior is, like, uh... It's kind of like... Grimoire. Grimoire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a... To my knowledge, it's like a fan fiction of Lovecraft works. Like, it takes, like the basis of Lovecraft and then either expands upon it or like makes a new monster from it or like is some sort of encyclopedia on it. So he basically just drew some of the most disgusting looking creatures he could think of. And like, he just in like this book and then, uh, the writer Dan O'Bannon was like, yeah, like let's get this guy to make all of our aliens. And it's so (laughs) great because each of the, um, each of the different stages of the alien has a completely different look and a completely different feel. The egg to the face hugger to the chest buster to the xenomorph, which is like a big scale alien at the very, very end. Yeah, I think I, I learned this from another podcast that the reason it kind of looks so menacing because Geiger purposely didn't give it eyes so that it'll look even more menacing. Mm-hmm. I don't know like what the whole psychological aspect of that is but yeah it had no eyes i couldn't i couldn't relate to it man like how can i relate to an alien who doesn't have eyes man you know it's like like i really didn't care about the alien's character development (laughs) (laughs) that is the one complaint i have all right what's some other facts that you have for us um so it's a very common myth that they filmed like the chestbuster scene in one take and that's actually not the case they filmed it in two takes but the first take, the chestbuster did not make it through the body. What? So, uh, what ends up happening is because it didn't make it through, the whole crew was on edge because they're like, I, they did not know what was going to come out of it. So when the second take, when it finally did come out, um, they had a very visceral reaction to it. Okay, because I, I, I might have confused that because I thought like it was totally improv. They didn't know what was going to happen to chestbuster scene, and I like logistically, I'm thinking like. How do you not know something's going to, like, burst out of the chest? Like, they set it up so you know it's going to happen. But that makes more sense. They didn't know what it looked like, you know? Yes. They didn't know what the chest buster would look like. And then when it shows up, they're like, well, that is not what I was expecting. Um, some of the, the reason the alien bleeds acid um, is because when they were writing it, Dan O'Bannon could not figure out a way. Um, why didn't they didn't just shoot it? <laughs> they just shot it. It's like, oh, we got him. It's like, oh, but it bleeds acid, and it's gonna kill all of you. Uh, and if you watch Aliens, you'll see some. Uh, what happens when you just shoot an alien? 
I imagine it melts the thing that they're standing on. It uh does some pretty wacky stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I know you said that there's like a, uh some film theories that you fan theories that you wanted to discuss. Here's something that like I might have picked up on. So it's like it's like a like you said it's a capitalistic analysis, right? Mm-hmm. And that one scientist, the science officer, the guy, the one played by Ian Holm, he was an android the whole time, but no one knew. Yes. And the fact that like Ridley Scott also directed Blade Runner, I think there's the same company or like in the same world where the androids um, exist in the same world as Alien. So I don't know if it's the same world per se. It's definitely some of the same thematic material though. Like, it does not surprise me that Ridley Scott directed Blade Runner pretty much right after this, because it's like, well, you know, he had experience working with (laughs) (laughs) androids. But, no, I guess, like, so, like, there's a lot of ways to read Alien. One of the ones that a lot of people, and myself, latch on is it's it's about capitalism. Right. In the sense that um, these people are working class, um, even before the alien shows up, their conversations are about pay and how, right, um, definitely. uh, I believe it's Parker and, uh, Brett, is it Parker? Yeah, Parker and Brett are basically are like the engineers and they don't get paid as much as like the regular crew. And like, that's some of the conversations they have, like when you're just setting up characters, setting up stakes sort of thing. And then obviously like... So it's like a working class ship. They are sent here to this unknown planet by basically not their will. And they get attacked and murdered all for like this company to be able to like take this weapon and profit off of it somehow. Right. And it's basically an extended metaphor of how capitalism uses the working class in order to like expand their goals. And how the rich and powerful constantly benefit from the blood of the, uh, the poor. And this is this is a this is definitely made very explicit in Aliens. Okay. Like that 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 metaphor continues to go on. I can kind of see that as well because like they're very human. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like they they built them up as people who have concerns. Like they have a job to. Yes, it's awesome to be in space, but essentially just a job, and they want to go home. And but you know they want to make sure that they're paid equally or like their fair share of the work they contributed to the to the job. So yeah, in that sense, it's very human right there. Except for Ian Holmes' character, who, from the beginning, I can kind of see, like, the subtle cues, like, this man does not care for these people at all. Like, he's... <laughs> the one in particular was when um that one dude was choking. I forgot, he was... he, he He's the chestburster guy. He when was, Kane is uh, choking. Yeah, yeah when, when he's choking, he's like, oh, this is serious. Like, no, what? <laughs> Do you not see? Like, everyone else is concerned and he's the last one to be concerned. He's like looking at like, oh, this is serious. Okay. Once <laughs> it turns out he's in, actually an android, I'm like, this makes so much more sense because he did not have any regard for them at all. Yeah, he and he plays it so well. And like his little monologue after he gets uh like decapitated kind of <laughs> is like so good and so creepy. It also like, um, that's another, like, theme of it. Like, who is the real alien here? Is it, like, this monster that they've let on board? Or is it, like, this android that was created by man and whose only real goal is to kind of make money for, like, the company? Mm. Like, who is really, like, more detrimental to the crew's success? You could make the argument that Ash as the android is way, way, like, scarier. 
because he's controlled by humans and like that he has like motivation at least the alien is just a monster like it's just an animal right the alien is just like primal essentially yes. it has no technology and like the the alien the other alien that they saw that was dead i think you know what i'm talking about it was in that chair i think that's the one they're most interested in the company was oh i don't it, no 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 you need to watch Aliens. You really okay. need to watch Aliens. <laughs> because I saw Prometheus, and like that, I think that was the alien they had in Prometheus. Yes, that is the alien from Prometheus. But um, they wanted the Xenomorph. Man, fuck that company, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, how dare you, Space Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> um, Mister, what's his name? Elon Bezos. <laughs> Elon Bezos. <laughs> So, like, if you really want to hear, like, an out-there fan theory, tell me if you picked up on this. So, Alien, the movie Alien, is about rape. Yeah, picked up on it. Okay, I just want to make sure, because I tell people that sometimes, and they're like, you're kidding. But specifically about, like... Male rape. Uh, male rape. So, obviously, the thing, the face hugger, it's very, like, uh, like, vaginal imagery. Like, it's a big hole in the middle and then like you know like um like hands coming out of it almost and it like attaches it to a male it impregnates him with the world's worst embryo (laughs) 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 and then basically what happens is he gives birth and it is like this phallic like thing it's like this white phallic thing that's like dripping ooze from its mouth. And mm. that's what bursts out of his chest. And then obviously when you get to the actual, like... So if the face hugger's a vagina, then the, the chest buster's like phallic. Then you get the, uh, the xenomorph itself, which is just a big, long penis with a <laughs> smaller penis that comes out of its mouth to like stab you to like <laughs> penetrate your skin like it's all about the fact that all of this comes from eggs as well like that's where the xenomorph comes from so it's basically all about uh like male rape as well as just like you know child birth is terrifying yeah <laughs> it's like the very it's a very very uh like intrinsic way of looking at that. That's, that's also the part that like, concerned me as well, because like I kind of like cared about Kane. That's his name, Kane. Yeah. Not that I cared about him, but like I felt very sorry for him. Like I felt like horrified for him essentially, because like that's like a very violent way to die and a very violent thing. Like he was he was raped essentially, and yeah. he gave birth to like an alien. And they uh, they intentionally made a man be the one to, because uh, the initial plan, and this isn't just like a fan theory, like Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter, was like, no, I want them, I want the audience to be attacked sexually. Like, that's mm. what he said. The people who made Alien were fucked up, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, one, they were like, how does the alien get on the ship? And if someone was like, I don't know, it fucks one of them. And then that is how they were like, oh, let's think of the face hugger. And then they were like, well, we can't have a woman be face hugged because that just seems kind of in bad taste. Like it's a, right. it's like a form of rape. And then we're just going to rape our two, one of our two female characters. Um, so they did it to the male character and it actually works so much better that way because it completely leaves all the males in the audience. Like what the hell's going on guys? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to come next. Because now the men are terrified. Oh yeah. Because pregnancy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you've seen Prometheus, like 
Uh, the Parts whole, of it. Parts of yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember almost anything from Prometheus. The one scene I remember is if I if I remember correctly, she like aborts her her chest buster, doesn't she? I probably did not pick up on that. I didn't. She I like missed that part because the girl gets the she gets an alien in her, doesn't she? And then she gets in like the uh like this machine and it like cuts the alien out of her. Ah, she aborts she aborts her. <laughs> <laughs> she aborts the alien out of her. So yeah, like, the whole, like, sexual metaphor and allegory of it is, like, a huge part of the franchise. Even, like, the newer ones play around with the ideas of that. Uh, my question to you, do you think Alien is a particularly feminist film? I can see how it is. I don't know. Um, I, cause it's, the a woman, like, essentially, like, is the only one who's, um, not, not in control, but she's the only smart one who knew what to do. She knew what needed to be done, and then she's the only survivor. I don't know. That's that's my answer. I don't know. Yeah. To this day, there's, like, academic film debate over, is Alien Feminist or not? I personally don't know. I think Ripley is awesome. Mm-hmm. I think everyone agrees Ripley is awesome, and everyone loves her. And, she, like, she's one of the most iconic uh, film, horror movie characters for a reason, and or even sci-fi movie characters. It's interesting that she is a woman, but she has uh, less feminine traits than Lambert, the other woman on board. Like, she right. is a lot, like, or like, less traditionally feminine traits. Because she's a lot less, uh... Like, she's not crying all the time. Like she, <laughs> She's, like, ready to fight this thing if need be. But she's still, like... Uh, she's also, like, looks a lot more androgynous than Lambert does in the film. And... I think that, like, she was actually written as a male character. Ripley was supposed to be a dude. Oh. Um, but then Sigourney Weaver, I want to say auditioned, or, like, late in the writing process or during the casting process. I don't know for sure. Eventually, they decide it should be a woman. And then that's when the character of Ripley, especially with Sigourney Weaver's performance, was born. I will say that this movie did get um, a crossover with Alien versus Predator. Yes. <laughs> That does um. exist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I haven't seen it. I, I tell you, I haven't seen it. I, I think people didn't like it or something, but... So, do you want to know how it happened? I guess the Predator wanted to hunt something that was very advanced or, like, very... Not advanced, but, like, very dangerous. So, what happened is in Predator 2... The Predator movies are also a pretty good watch. I like Alien a thousand times more, but Predator's solid. In Predator 2, you get to see into it like a Predator layer, and there's a fun little Easter egg. They put a uh, an alien xenomorph head ah. in his layer. Um, and then all the fanboys of the 1990s were like, Oh my god! Imagine there was like an Alien versus Predator movie! And then it took like a decade for the studios to finally work it out. But... Eventually, you get an Alien vs. You get two Alien vs. Predator movies. Neither are very good. <laughs> um, in fact, they're both quite bad and pretty stupid. Except the part where the alien fights the Predator. Those parts are great. But, but yeah, that's how it happened. Now, do you feel you should have seen Alien sooner? I don't know. Uh, with most of the movies I've seen for like um, season one and this season as well, the majority is like, oh, I think this is the perfect time for me to watch it. And there are like a very few ones where are like, oh, I should have seen this sooner. This one, I don't know what to say. It definitely was never really in my radar until like film classes, essentially, if you know what I mean, like a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. 
And I wasn't very particularly into horror movies back then, if that makes sense. Oh. I, I was a scaredy cat. Kind of am today, but I can like, no, this is fake. Stop. <laughs> yeah, this is the only way I can say, I don't know. I don't regret watching it, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to say like, this is a bad film, I didn't like it. No, I, mm-hmm. I really much enjoyed this. I thought it was really good. I thought it was a solid film. I, I don't know if I should have seen this movie sooner. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge horror movie guy. I really, I think horror is the genre I'm most familiar with, actually. So, I love Alien. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't like it the first time I watched it, though. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, I've, actually, I've watched it four times now that I think about it now. Oh, well, look at you. Because I watched it when I was, like, 12, and I was like, it's fine, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's not scary. Now I'm like, oh my god, this is terrifying. Yeah, no one can hear you scream in space. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on it? Any other bits you would like to talk about? It, it felt so much more realistic about the quarantine thing, but that way he ignored it. <laughs> that was like the most human thing Ash could have done, <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, 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 bring him in. We need to save him. <laughs> Back before um, 2020, people would have been like, you stupid person. Like, no one would actually do that in real life. Like, the reason he did it is because he's an android. And now I was like, no, there's plenty of people who ignore that request. The quarantine request. I love how, like, they kind of frame Ripley as the bad guy in that scene. Because she's yeah. like, hey, like, we shouldn't be letting this guy back on. It's like, Ripley, he's dying. Like... <laughs> <laughs> procedure goes out the window and then you know they all go out the window <laughs> because of that if you just listen to ripley when she was like this is a procedure all right everyone thank you so much for listening we reached the end of our discussion zekiel thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed this all right i'm glad i'm glad you had fun i had fun too but before we leave uh, I want to ask, were the movies a hit or a miss a few? So for both Citizen Kane and Alien, were they hit or miss? Oh, both hits. They're both hits, definitely. Same here. They're both hits for me as well. And I'm very confident in, my, in that decision as well. All right. So where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, of course. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Zachiel underscore Marsh. That's mostly just my personal account. But every year I do post... Um, critical write-ups of my favorite movies, albums, and TV shows of the year. I make a top 10 list, do some graphic design work, <laughs> little little blurbs for each one. It's really fun. They look really nice. I've seen them. They look really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Then, uh, if you also want, you can follow me on TikTok under, um, I believe I'm under Z Reviews right now. Uh, though that name's subject to change. But Z Reviews at the moment, uh, or Zachiel M. And basically I write uh, pop culture reviews, uh, movie reviews, things like that. I have a really funny one uh, <laughs> that <laughs> I probably won't talk about right now because it's not film-related in the slightest. But I would really appreciate any uh, love over there. Didn't you do one about the Travis Scott burger? That was just an Instagram story. I post a lot of <laughs> funny Instagram stories that I should make into TikToks, but I don't. <laughs> I think that deserves that deserves to be on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but I think that would be very popular on TikTok. I have a... I, my favorite one on my TikTok is... Um, I did a, a song review of the new Ariana Grande song, Positions. And I talk about how it's secretly a metaphor for pegging. Um, and and you wouldn't think it works but trust me when it works it works
So that's the episode, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hit List Podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hit List Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hit list underscore podcast.